It's the Airhead 247 Podcast. The Airhead 247 Podcast, powered by Wedgetail Ignition Systems, state of the art ignition for your 247 Airhead. Proudly made in Australia by motorcyclists who love their BMWs. By the BMW Motorcycle Owners of America, who invite you to ride inspired. And Boxer2Valve.com, the premium supplier for all your airhead replacement parts. Now, let's get this thing fired up. Greetings again, everybody. This week, it's part one of our conversation with Tom Cutter. But before we jump in, a word of thanks to everyone out there for your support, emails, and reviews. We really appreciate it. A reminder to drop us a line with whatever is on your mind. Airheads247 at hotmail.com is the email address. And if you're listening to us via Apple Podcast, please leave us a review if you're so inclined. Well, Tom Cutter has a long and rich history with BMW, from his days at Butler Smith to now operating his own repair shop in Yardley, Pennsylvania. Also of note, Tom has recently taken on U.S. distribution of the Wedgetail Ignition System. No surprise, Tom has a lot to say and a lot of stories to share. So let's get on with it. Part one of our conversation with Tom Cutter here on the Airhead 247 Podcast. All right, we're on the line with Tom Cutter of Rubber Chicken Bracing, uh, located in Pennsylvania. And Tom, uh, good to catch up with you today. You know, we start out these interviews sort of with an origin story uh, with a lot of folks. How'd you get into BMW motorcycles? What was your first bike? Uh, what? How? How were you introduced to the motorcycles? And I think we can almost pinpoint this back to birth, as you mentioned to me in some of our pre-interview conversations. Explain to the listeners the connection with the BMW factory, your birthplace, and later on how this came to be in your world of BMW motorcycles. Uh, thank you, Darren. Um, I'm really looking forward to this uh, conversation. Um, yeah, you could say I was born to BMW. I was actually born in the U.S. Army Hospital in uh, Munich, Germany. Um, and when the U.S. Army closed their base, as they normally do, they tore down every single structure that they made and left open tilled land in which they sold. And uh, in, in that case, in, in that situation, the land that they sold happened to be next to the BMW, the original BMW factory, which was a motorcycle and car factory at that time. Uh, by that by that point, I think it had, it had become one of a couple of factories. But, um, and they built the BMW museum on the site where the hospital was. So, when I, when I want to refer back to my birthplace, I can look at an aerial a satellite image of Munich, and I can see the world's largest BMW emblem right where I was born. <laughs> so I guess I, was, I guess it was destiny that I was that I was born to be in the BMW world. Yeah, well said. And when did you sort of realize there was that connection there? Um, actually, 
It's funny. My mother pointed it out to me because she had talked. I'm sure you knew Kari Prager or know of Kari. Uh, Kari owned Mount, uh, California BMW in, in Mountain View, California. And uh, he, um, Kari was born the same day in the same hospital as I was. And we ended up in the BMW industry on opposite end of the country. And my mother stayed in touch with his mother socially, you know, Christmas card letters and stuff like that. And uh, uh, one day she... Uh, his mother mentioned to my mom that the BMW Museum sat on the location of the hospital where both of us were born. And uh, my mom told me about it, and I didn't think a big thing of it until I went on uh, a BMW dealer trip where they had a sales contest. And, and uh, I worked for a dealership that opened the day the contest started, and the awards were based on the percentage of sales increase. So we sold one motorcycle and automatically won the contest. So we won a trip for two, and the guy that owned the business, uh, his wife was a school teacher, and it was the first week of school, so she couldn't go. So he and I went along with 49 other dealers and their their spouses or par- or significant others, and, and we had an eight-day trip to uh Germany to the BMW factory. We went to the factory in Berlin. Uh, we went to the salt mines in Austria. We had a really fun time. But while we were in the uh, BMW museum, we were with our, our BMW tour guides, and Kari Prager was standing a few feet away. And I said to the guide, and it was my birthday that day, and I said, Kari and I were born here 36 years ago. And in this location right here, and Kari turned around and looked at me. And he and I didn't really grow up together or anything. We knew that our parents were friendly and stuff like that. Yeah. I knew his family name. But, but we, uh, anyways, the, the BMW people got very excited about that and made a big fuss about it and invited us to a nice dinner up in the top of the four-cylinder building, which they informed us during dessert that the guy that designed that four-cylinder building had two major projects for which he was noted. The first was a bridge in Italy, which collapsed shortly after the BMW (laughs) four-cylinder building was completed. And if you look at that building, it's a really weird design. It's like a central column with four cloverleaf-shaped pods attached, and they made each pod and lifted them up and made the next one and lifted them up. So it was kind of a suspension building. And we're eating dinner in the top of it. Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> that could be a, l- a little disconcerting hearing that news, I suppose. Yeah, it was. And I thought, <laughs> well, I guess there's a reason why they didn't tell us about that before we got on the elevator. <laughs> wow. Well, that is anyway. that is a really uh, a one-in-a-million backstory. You know, not only you, uh, but the other fellow you mentioned there, both being born in, in, at that location, getting involved in the motorcycles. You know, some would think coincidence, but maybe, you know, there was a, the stars had aligned and, and had plans for you otherwise. That's that's just an amazing. I, I, I guess. I don't know. I mean, when I got involved with BMW motorcycles, it was kind of accidental. Um, I mean, I had ridden one. I, I, I worked a summer on a ranch in Wyoming. I was a uh, troubled youth, let's call it that. Okay. It was really nice. All right. And uh, so my parents knew that they couldn't couldn't leave me unsupervised for a summer between junior and senior year of high school. So they looked for options. And my my new brother-in-law had just married my older sister and he'd come from Powell, Wyoming. 
and he had worked on a ranch out there for several years in the summer. And since he was going in the Army, they needed help. And so he volunteered me to work on the ranch. My parents put me on an airplane. And basically, all that I was told was bring jeans and work shoes. And I had no clue what was going on. So I went to this this farm, and it was they hard they they farmed about fourteen thousand acres of alfalfa and had a pellet mill for feedlot and like that. And, and uh, to do the irrigation chores on the farm, we used the lawn to trail nineties to ride around and 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 dig the ditches. And, you know, you know, to do the irrigation stuff. And uh, but they had a whole gang of motorcycles. That was one whole building that was just filled with motorcycles. And I was in heaven because I loved motorcycles, but I didn't own one. And I had not owned a bike before then, because every bike that I borrowed to try any of my friends, I was like, "Hey, come on, come on, come on!" I would bug them just mercilessly. Let me try your bike. And everyone I would try, I'd just run it through the gears with the throttle twisted wide open until I lost control and crashed. <laughs> and it's, it's a miracle that I survived. I did eight different bikes. Wow! And uh, including my my sister was well, I was in uh, early in high school. My sister was a senior in high school, and we we grew up a few feet from the campus of Dartmouth College, and she liked to date Dartmouth football players. And these guys would show up with little, you know, Honda 90s mm-hmm. and 125s and stuff. And they wanted to take her on a date, and her little brother was like, come on, come on, let me try your motor. like, let me just ride it around the house. <laughs> and I would, every time I would crash. <laughs> and my sister would be like, it was, she told me once it was the litmus test yeah, of the they- guys she dated. She was like, if they're dumb enough to let a little kid ride their motorcycle and not flip out when he crashes on it, because she knew it was going to happen, yeah, she would go in the house and warn my mother to get band-aids out, and I would, and and, and she would, uh, she said that that's how she determined whether this was a guy worthy of keep to keep dating. Sure, yeah, that uh, is that, that is a good litmus the, test, yeah. Yeah, the guy that she ended up marrying, um, also a football player. She went to University of Utah, and he was a he was a player there and a Minnesota Vikings draft choice. But anyways, I digress. I uh, so I rode all these motorcycles, but didn't own one. I go on this farm, and I said, "Okay, you're going to use one of those." And they pointed this whole line of Trail 90s, and they all had a piece of PVC pipe hose clamped to them with a with a seven foot long shovel sticking out of it. And uh, they said, you take that, and we'll, we'll show you tomorrow what to do. And, and that was pretty much the training I got. And then once we did irrigation and once we had crops growing uh, and ready for harvest, my job was to run a windrower, which is a device that cuts and bale, cuts, crimps, and bales hay, and or alfalfa in this case. And, and we were just cutting and baling alfalfa to be taken to the pellet mill. It wasn't being sold or anything. So... Um, and I ran this huge windrower, which they told me later was the, it was an experimental model by the company Heston, and it was huge. And here I am at that point. I was a 15 year old kid, and uh, or 16, I guess I was 16 then, and, and um, driving this thing around, cutting hay all day, with my 22 pistol in my holster, and just having a great old time shooting rabbits and and just you know living the life out sure. there on a farm in Wyoming. Yeah, and. Uh, and, and and having all these motorcycles that I could ride, and at night, the, the, their attitude was, if you're going to work, you'd be up 5.30 in the morning at breakfast, 
At the end of the workday, you can do whatever you want until tomorrow morning at 5.30. So, uh, and we had a blackboard in the laundry room where we could write down whatever we needed. So I wrote down, you know, cartons of cigarettes and cigarettes would appear. And I would write down, you know, a case of beer. And a case of beer would appear there on my <laughs> shelf. And I was like, oh, this is working for me. Yeah. <laughs> so... So I started borrowing different motorcycles to go ride into town. And Powell, Wyoming is basically, you know, two drive at that time was two drive in, uh, you know, restaurants, you know, sock hop type, what do you call them? Yeah, you know, yeah. Drive in restaurants like A&W, one at each end of a strip. And so we just basically rode back and forth on the strip and, and stopped at one or the other place. And that was it. But. Um, those are the days. And one of the motorcycles I got to ride was an R69S that the oldest brother of the family that owned the farm, he had brought it back from Germany uh, in his container load of belongings. He was an officer in the Army and apparently had done quite well in the, uh, let's say, the black market, the gray market, whatever, of Army material that got sold out the back door, and, and he brought home a Mercedes-Benz. He brought home an R69S. Mm. He brought home all kinds of other collectible stuff in his container. But right after he got home, the Honda 750 four-cylinder came out, and the brothers, I, I went with them. We loaded up in a uh, flatbed truck, and we went to Billings, Montana, and walked in the Honda dealer, and we had a check from the owner of the farm, and we bought 10 Honda Trail 90s and three Honda CB750s Wow! at like 10 o'clock in the morning. And then we went to the Billings Fair, and the owner of the motorcycle shop gave us one of their shop vehicles to use, some, I don't even remember, a truck or a car. And we went to the fair all day, and when we came back, they had all the motorcycles. Crate. They had set up every, PDI'd every bike and strapped them back to the crates and, and put them on the, the flatbed, and we drove back to, to, uh, down to Billings, and, and, or not to Billings, down to Powell, Wyoming, and offloaded them and had all these brand-new shiny Hondas. And they weren't letting me drive the 750s. No, but those no, were... No, no, no. Those are, those are our brand new bikes. Those are the Playboys for the three sons in the family. And uh, they were like, you can ride that old R69. So old <laughs> R69, the bike was like five weeks old. Yeah. Well, I and, will say this. The only thing... Yeah, well, let me jump in there real quick, Tom. You know, those, yeah. at, at the time, the, when those uh, Hondas came out, I mean, that was a big revelation in the motorcycle industry. Big four-cylinder... Uh, engine, high performance, the fit and finish on those, uh, the horsepower, you know, it was a completely different motorcycle uh, compared to the R69. Oh, I'm well aware. Yeah. I had in high school, I, I hung out with the motorcycle guys, even though I didn't have a bike. And and I had friends who bought whatever was the newest, biggest Honda, and it went from 350 to 450, and they were eagerly awaiting the 750 the day that I shipped out to go to Wyoming. So when I came home and started talking about the 750, they were like, well, we already got it. We got <laughs> two or three of my friends already had them, and I had a chance to ride them, and I was just blown away by how much how fast they were, but how much mechanical noise they made and everything else. And the R69S was just a whole different experience. My first ride on an R69S was from Powell, Wyoming, up to Pahaska Teepee, which is one of the entrances to Yellowstone Park. And I met a high school buddy of mine who was on a cross-country trip 
with a couple from Dartmouth. They were Dartmouth students. They're making a film, and they're driving a 49 Cadillac ambulance painted pink and green. Hmm. And uh, there were the couple was Don Johnson and Melanie Griffith, who he went on to Miami Vice. Yeah. She went on to a whole bunch of other acting things. But they were just a college, uh, freshly married young couple living in the, the apartment above my friend's dad's garage. Um, and so he did this cross-country trip, and he called me up. He knew I was in Wyoming. He called me while they were on the road and said, we're going to be in Pahaskatipi. Come on up and meet me. And so I took that R69S at the end of a full day of work and jumped on and rode up. And, and I still to this day vividly remember remembering just being north of Rawlings, Wyoming, riding along the Shoshone River with a full moon and watching the moon reflecting off the river and the bike just purring behind me. And it's a, it's stuck in my memory. It was yeah. just this amazing feeling. The bike was silent. Yeah. And, and, and just the, the, the tires, I could hear the, the, the faint hum of the tires and, and just, you know, of course, eating bugs like crazy, but, <laughs> But uh, just loving this ride and and thinking how wonderful it was and what a great motorcycle this was. And, of course, as a very inexperienced rider, this had plenty of horsepower for me. You know, it would hold 60 or 70 miles an hour all day. And you don't ride much faster than that when you're a deer on the roads in the dark. No, no. Well, it sounds, um, yeah, and it sounds like that ride in particular, and that's, that's a great sort of meant uh, a great imagery uh, you painted there i mean i can see the moonlight uh on the river and how you describe that the hum of the uh of the slash two motor there it sounds like that's when that really uh when bmw got into your dna uh on that ride yeah it did and then i had a, a a friend a high school friend we went to visit his brother at university of vermont and when we were walking across the quad, a blue R75 slash 5 went by, and my friend says, you hear that? Uh, I turned and I said, what? He said, that's my point. That's a BMW. Yeah. And it just pur- purred past. And and I wasn't close enough to hear the valve clatter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I got to say, yeah, you get a little closer, they're not silent. But but um, I looked at it, and my friend, this was like a good friend of mine. He And he was a, you know, he... He made a point of becoming expert on anything that interested him, and 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 he raved about how good these BMW motorcycles were. But the first, my first up close, other than that R69S, I, I bought. I had a Bridgestone 175 that I bought, and and uh, I had it at home, and 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 my dad. I asked my dad one day to use his truck so I could take the bike to the local motorcycle shop, and my dad said no. He said, I got a better idea. Get in the truck. And so we got in the truck, and we went down to the auto parts store where he had a business account for his business. He went in and he said to me, what kind of motorcycle do you have? And I said, it's a Bridgestone. And he said to the guy, what kind of tools does that need? The guy said, well, that needs metric stuff. So he said... I want to set my son up with some some basic tools. What do you got? So he he bought me that day a socket and ratchet set and an open and box end wrench set and a screwdriver set. And we went home, and he dug out my grandfather's toolbox, which was basically a big tackle box, 
And he said, here, that was your grandfather's toolbox, and there was a couple of ball-peen hammers in there. He said, you can use that. He said, I'll help you build a workbench down in the basement, and we'll rig up some lights for it, and you can work on your motorcycle yourself. And I said, well, well, yeah, that's fine. I mean, I just come home from Wyoming, and I had learned some stuff about mechanical things, but I said, I don't really know how to do it. He said, so try. He said, and at the end, even if you can't fix it, he said, then we'll put it in the truck and take it to the shop. But, but he said, how much do they charge in that shop for labor? I said, oh, they're $8 an hour. He said, that's ridiculous to pay that. Can you imagine now getting that? Yeah, wait, anyway. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, that's great. I mean, that's akin to, you know, do you know how to swim? No. Uh, and your dad just kind of throws you in the shallow end of the pool and says, figure he it did out. that, too. <laughs> he did that too. We had a motorboat on our camp, on the lake at camp, and if you wanted to water ski, the first deal was you got thrown out of the boat in the middle of the lake, and you told you could sw- if you swim back to the dock, okay, then you can water ski. Yeah. One of the reasons so many airheads are still on the road today is because of great parts suppliers and enthusiasts like Boxer Two Valve. William and Edward Plam at Boxer 2 Valve have years of experience with the 247 Airhead, dating back to their first repair shop and dealership in the early 1980s. Boxer 2 Valve stocks and sources only premium parts and tools, so no need to worry if you're getting a cheap pattern or shortcut part. They simply don't carry them. Boxer 2 Valve has extensively researched which parts are correct for your motorcycle. Just enter your year and model, and you'll see only the parts that fit your bike. That takes the guesswork out of the ordering process. Real-time stock information that is also available, so no need to guess what may be on back order that could delay your project. Also, if you're digging into a repair for the first time, be sure to check out Boxer 2 Valve's video repair series. These cover both Twin Shock and Post 81 models and are great tutorials that go step-by-step through a variety of repairs and parts replacement procedures. The video series is a great workshop companion, one I've used many times over the years. So for all your airhead parts needs, Boxer2Valve.com. That's the number two, Boxer2Valve.com. Well, let's oh, move along. Right. Let's move along the anyway, timeline yeah, here. So you've got the okay. you've got the uh, Bridgestone there. Uh, you've got some metric yep. tools. Uh, you've got yep. a workbench, and so eventually, uh, an Airhead two four seven finds its way into your hands. And I know there's there's some other things along the line there. But yep. tell tell me about uh, the first Airhead you ended up purchasing, and, and sort of what's the story behind okay. that? Okay. Well, yeah. I went to that shop to buy Bridgestone parts, and the guy asked why I was buying transmission gears, and I said, because they're broken. I had one in my in my hand. He said, who's going to put it in? And I said, I am. And, and he said, oh, and, you know, come back with the bike, and let me, let me check it out. And I rode the bike back up when I finished it, and he hired me. Oh, that's great. Work in the shop. That was the BMW wheel shop in East Stafford, Vermont. And... Uh, uh, what he didn't tell me was that there would be nobody else working with me. <laughs> I got there. He gave me, at the end of the, quote, hiring interview, which was on a Sunday night, he handed me the key, and he said, open the door at 9 a.m. Wow. I get there in the morning, and there's, uh, by, this, by this point in the season, it is November, and there's snow in the parking lot. And I open the door, and I go in, 
and there's a note, there's a workbench all cleared off with a repair order on it for a BSA 650, and the note, the repair order says, make run. <laughs> the bike was all disassembled in boxes. So I put my little toolbox of tools on there, and I stared at those, and I was scared. I bet. And I walked around, and I looked around the shop, and they had some new BMWs and uh, new Slash 5s, and, a, and even a couple of new Slash 2s are what looked new to me in, in the shop. And, and I kept looking, and I'm like, oh, man, these BMWs are so cool. I really like them. And, and But I started by working on that BSA, and I actually got it running. And... Uh, I said, okay. So I didn't know how to work out the bill. He said, don't worry about it. The guy's in prison for life. He said he's never going to come get the budget. Just wanted to see if you could see if you could do it. Okay. (laughs) My dad called you or what? Anyway. (laughs) So then uh, I bought a Harley chopper. It's absolutely gorgeous. It's done by a guy who's an artist and did a beautiful job. But unfortunately, it was a Harley chopper and it had a 71 Super Glide power plant that wouldn't run more than 20 miles without blowing up. And uh, so I bought it from him, and and the first ride went 20 miles, and it blew up. Brought it back in the shop truck. I pulled the motor, rebuilt it, put it all back together. The next trip went like 60 miles, and it blew up, and it was just a nightmare. <laughs> so I came back, and I, I said, John, I'm going to push this bike out in the street and burn it and collect the insurance money. That was my bright idea. He said, I got a better idea. He said, park it back in the showroom and take that R90S for a ride. See how you like it. And we went, we took two R90Ss and went for a ride. And uh, about an 80 mile ride around New Hampshire and Vermont on one Sunday. And I came back and I was in love. I said, that is just the most magical motorcycle. Well, first of all, because it actually got back to the barn on its own. Yeah, right. I was truly impressed impressed with not having to push it up a ramp to complete the trip. But also, uh, just the bike just purred along. I just, I remember that ride that day so vividly, riding around uh, Lake Sunapee in New Hampshire, just a beautiful spring day and and uh you know the the trees are in bloom and 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 the smell of of trees and 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 flowers and pollen and his bike just just making its way peacefully through the area that was really the thing that struck me was was how at one with the elements that bike was now was that a uh first year model a silver smoke 74 Yes, it was. It was, and this was in 1973. We had gotten our first batch, and uh, we came back. And I said, I really, really liked that. And he said, He said, I'll tell you what. He said, I'll take the Harley and trade in. I don't remember the numbers, but I basically got the R90s for dealer cost, which at that time I think was like twenty nine hundred dollars, twenty nine twenty something like that. And uh, they, they were on their retail value was thirty five hundred dollars, thirty four ninety five, and uh, um, so that became my bike. And and after a few weeks, that guy fired me um, because I mouthed off too much and and uh, refused to cut my hair. And that's a that's that particular issue comes up a lot in my employment history. But um, <laughs> okay. uh, but so so. He said, well, you've got to pay off the bike. I said, well, well what am I going to do? He, and so I had met his banker. We had gone on a motorcycle ride with him. And he said, go down and see the guy at the bank. He said, he'll write you a loan. I already talked to him. 
So I went down and I got a loan and I came back with the check for the bike. And now I had no job and a loan for a bike. Yeah, <laughs> and hey, no job. Yeah, and you know that's not chump change. I mean, you know, you're close to no, that's th- not. That's close to three grand back then. Yeah. Yeah, we're talking, yeah, 1973, that's heavy-duty money it for is. a kid. I was only 19, 20 years old, and I dropped out of college after a year, so I wasn't even 20 yet. And uh, um, so so I, I went up, and I picked up the bike, and I left, and there was a little, you know, it was a very uncomfortable because I'd just been fired kind of deal. And I got on the bike, and I was just... Like ah, I got a bike. At least I've got a bike. And you know, I was, you know, you know the the heavy duty consequential thinking of a nineteen year old. And uh, so I wound it as fast as it would go, and uh, came to a long sweeping curve. And in the middle of the curve, I met an approaching rainstorm. And the the road was wet. There was dust from a driveway that was wet and slick. And I was going over a hundred miles an hour, and the bike just went out from under me and ended up nose down in a swamp with the engine revving wildly. Oh, Lord. Um, yeah, it was that was kind of an intense moment, and I didn't get hurt. I got scuffed up, but I didn't get injured. And I uh, got the bike out of there, and the bike was totaled, and I uh, got an insurance settlement for it because, thank God, one thing my parents beat into my head was you always get insurance. That's Never right. That's right. Insurance. That's right. And so my mom was really happy to hear from the insurance agent that I had totaled my new motorcycle in four hours <laughs> after getting the policy. <laughs> she, she, she knew it was going to happen. She knew my history with every motorcycle. So I bought an R90 slash six that I kept, and I actually kept that bike until God, I lived in Staten Island, New York by the time I got rid of that bike. So it must have been 81 or 82 I finally got rid of that bike. So you managed, you managed not to totally thrash that one, apparently. Oh, I, I crashed it several times. Oh, okay. I assembled right. it. I built I turned it into a hot rod motor. Um, I, at that time, I had started working at Butler and & Smith, and we'll come to, back to that. But, yeah. Um, I worked with Udo Giedel, and he was building the race bikes for Butler and Smith at that time. And, and I got all excited, and I said, one day, I want, to put a, I want to put a cam in my motor. So, And this is one of my favorite stories about Udo. He, he says, oh, have I got a cam for you? And he opens up the file cabinet, and he pulls out a box that says cams on the front. And I still can visual, I can see his handwriting in that. And I take out the cams, and each cam has a tag on it that says Laconia 75, uh, uh, Sears Point 76, and, and on, on all these tags, I'm, a, I'm like, oh, my God, all these racetracks that I've only ever read about. And here's the cams that they ran in every one, and I was like a kid in a candy store. And I said, well, I want the Laconia cam because I grew up near Laconia in New Hampshire. He said, okay, here, that's a great one, good choice. Now, let me ask you, let me uh, backtrack on that. Now, were those the ones that were used on uh, the uh, R90S race bikes? Um, I don't know if that one was used in 76. I mean, Udo changed cams more often than people change oil. Um, (laughs) So I'm pretty sure that was from a 1975 bike that was ridden by either Reg or Justice yeah. Taylor. Okay, yeah. But, 
all the tag said was was Laconia and a year, and I don't remember which. But I know I think all of the '76 bikes were roller cam motors. Now for, that was a whole different beast. Well, let let me jump in here, and for folks you know who yeah. may not realize, uh, or you know, just sort of tuning in and listening to this, uh, explain the, what those cams did on those motors in particular. So you're going to have uh, a longer. Uh, the valves are going to be open a little bit longer with the different profiles. How did those change? how the motor, uh, how that 247 motor worked and performed? Well, they opened, these cams were longer duration and much higher valve lift, uh, which meant that the valves were open longer and open more, which meant more air could get in, and breathing is the key to engine power. Uh, nothing happens if you don't have good breathing in a motor. And, uh, um, <clears throat> you know, now companies restrict the intake systems on motors to improve uh, turbulence and efficiency, but those high-lift, long-duration cams were, and these were all cam grinds that were developed for NASCAR or the early days of NASCAR. Guys like Smokey Yannick and and, uh, and those guys making, you know, developing these cams and the guys down at Crane Cams. And I got to the point where, where I had a first name relationship with Chase Knight down at Crane Cams and uh, he made lots of special cams for me over the years because Udo taught me well. He taught me, he said the whole motor is based around the cylinder head and what makes the cylinder head work is the camshaft. Now were they were they taking and repurposing a stock cam, essentially adding material to it and changing the profile or were these ground, uh, you know, uh, from raw? No. These were ground from blank castings. Okay. Um, they, they commi- Udo commissioned manufacture of about, I think there was 28 castings from some company in Germany that did that for him to his specs. And then Crane ground the raw castings, did all the finish work on them to our specs with all different grinds. And each, each cam had a tag with a all of the specs, so including you know what the the duration was at forty thousandths lift or fifty thousandths lift, sure. which is where cam duration really counts. I mean, engine tuners speak a whole different language when it comes to camshafts. And but he would always hand me this cam and says, "Oh, I got a cam for you." And I'm thinking, <laughs> well, I'm teaching service school. I know how to put a cam in a BMW motor. I'll have this. I'll be riding this bike home tonight. I had that motor apart on the bench at Butler and Smith for almost 10 months. Wow. Because every time I went to put the cam in, I realized, oh, this doesn't fit. And I said, Udo, yeah, it doesn't fit through the hole in the front. Oh, yeah, yeah I forgot to tell you, you got to grind away on the crankcase <laughs> a little bit here and there to make it go in. So I would do that, and I would put it, and I would start building, and I'd go, oh, wait. It goes in, but it won't turn. Oh, yeah, he said, you got to grind away the, the bottom of the, the lifter bores. To make it turn, and he he didn't say to me, "Watch out for any of this stuff." He let me discover each thing on my own. And when I came to him and said, "It doesn't work," what do I do? He would go and say, "Do this." Wow! And this is how you fix that. But each time, I'm completely stripping it down. Yeah. Grinding something, washing everything, making it all surgically clean because that's the only way that all works. Everything. And my rule is really simple: if it's not clean enough to put it in your mouth, I'm not putting it in a motor. That's a that's a good and, way to uh, look at it. 
Yeah, it's got to be absolutely surgically clean because the dirt and debris in the motor, they, they raise variables that you cannot factor in. Well, let me ask you before uh, we go on from those cams yeah. then, you know, for, so, you know, somebody's listening and saying, okay, yeah, well, I want to get a little more horsepower in my airhead or, you know, I've got an older bike I'm going to build from the engine out. I've got a project bike and I want to do that. What kind of... Does that affect the long-term health and reliability of a bike, assuming it's done, the cam's done properly, and everything's prepped and done properly? Does that have any uh, detrimental effect on the motor, or uh, what, what's the deal with that? Well, it's hard to say specifically because people who build hot rod motors are already prone <laughs> to, hot, to using yeah. their motors as if they're hot rods. Fair enough, and, yeah. And as happened with my R90 motor, when I finally did finish the motor, I mean, I took a motor that was probably a little under 50 horsepower and took it to close to 80 horsepower. Yeah. And put it back into a completely stock 74 R90-6 chassis. The first ride was terrifying. <laughs> that bike simply couldn't handle it. Didn't have the brakes for it. Didn't have the shocks for it. Didn't have anything for it. You know, anyways, and, and it's the same thing people, but people are not going to get fire-breathing monsters by popping in any aftermarket cam that they can buy over the counter. Okay. Um, and if people are selling uh, 344 cams, which is too much cam for the street. There's, a, I think, a, a 336 cam that's... Yep. Steven Rock is selling. I don't screw around with any of them. I talk people out of them instead because people have no idea how many things you have to change because you're not dealing within the design parameters for BMW anymore. So everything is different. The correct length of the intake track is different. The porting is that you need is different. The valve arrangement, all that stuff is different. And, and just sticking a camshaft in isn't going to do anything but make your valves hit the pistons a lot. Um, and and it's, it's all the stuff that Udo made me learn the hard way. You know, and putting that motor together, every, I mean, everything, they wouldn't turn, put it together the first time, wouldn't turn because the lifters were hitting the pushrod rubbers. I had to take the cylinders off and shorten the pushrod rubbers because I had too much cam lift. It was just one thing after another. Um, and these are the things that I, I learned from doing that. I was really lucky to be able to work with Udo. That was just all came about as a result of a conversation at service school. On the last day of service school, he always took the whole class out to lunch at a restaurant, and I sat next to Udo, and he told us that he was trying to hire a new instructor to teach the class because he hated it. He went from being the racing director to teaching service school. He hated that. Now, you're talking about, and, uh, but, you're talking about Butler and Smith service school here? Yeah. Okay. Butler and Smith service school, yes, right. that's correct. And Udo... When they ended the, the formal support of the racing program in 76, at the end of the 76 season, and their thinking was good. They were like, we won the championship. We can't go up from there. We can only go down. So now's a good time to stop. So they stopped. Udo kept thinking racing, um, and, and uh, uh, they made him teach service school. So I came to service school, and he said, that, he said we offered a German guy $25,000 a year to come over and, and teach school, and he laughed at us because the standard of living is so good in Germany. That was his point that he was making. was, well, the standard of living over there. I said, whoa, wait a minute. I said, you guys will pay $25,000 to teach service school? He said, well, yeah. I said, dude, I'd crawl over broken glass. Right. I mean, yeah, so this is the mid-'70s. Uh, that is a... That is a that's a high salary. 
it's because I was working in Vermont making $7,500 a year. Yeah. You know, 102.65 was my paycheck every week, and I had a family. I had a wife and a kid. And, uh, uh, you know, we were living paycheck to paycheck, and life was rough. But still, we made it, and we paid rent and car insurance and stuff like that. We made it okay on that $7,500 a year. Yeah. We were not poor by any means. But... $25,000 a year and work at Butler and Smith, the BMW place, like the holy grail of BMW places in the United States. I was like, hell yeah, sign me up, baby. So he said, you're hired. He did. He told me, get a, get a resume, send me a resume. I didn't do it. Our sales rep came in the shop in Vermont and said to me, uh, Udo's still waiting for your resume. I was like, oh, he was serious. <laughs> I still have a copy of my typed and carbon copy res- resume on my old Smith Corona, and I mailed it in. And I figured, okay, there's no way this is, he's going to accept it. And he called me up like the minute he got the mail, and he said, "You're hired. When can you be here?" Since this program launched in March of 2022, we've heard from a number of you telling us how much you enjoy it. So first off. Thanks for tuning in, and thanks for supporting us. To help continue our efforts here, we've partnered with the BMW Motorcycle Owners of America, who, coincidentally, are also fans and supporters of this program. The MOA is conducting a membership drive over the next several months. Their goal, to add 200 new members. And to help them do that, we're offering a free one-year digital membership for Airhead 247 listeners. The membership includes discounts at hotels, their monthly magazine, great deals on roadside assistance programs, and a fantastic network of BMW owners that share your passion. To sign up, visit 247.bmwmoa.org. Complete the online form and use the activation code AIRHEAD247. Or go to the description section in this podcast. We've popped a direct link right there. We want to say thank you to the BMW Motorcycle Owners of America and thank you to you for supporting our efforts here with the podcast, where we'll continue to bring you unique history and insight into the world of the 247 Airhead. That website, once again, for your free membership, 247.bmwmoa.org. Use the activation code AIRHEAD247. So, so I, I went down. <laughs> so let me jump in here. So I need to ask yeah. for folks who aren't familiar with this. So the BMW Service School that was run by Butler and Smith, and that was essentially yep. a place where they trained technicians for the growing uh, distribution of their dealer network across uh, the East Coast, mostly. Is that right? Yes. Well, Butler and Smith had two. Two points. They had the East Coast in Norwood, New Jersey, and on the West Coast in Compton, California. Okay. Helmut Kern ran the West Coast operation, and uh, Peter Adams ran the East Coast. Peter Adams was the vice president of the company. His father, his father's holdings actually owned the whole corporation, but um, that was in, in Norwood, New Jersey. And there was 34 employees in that building, between parts, sales. Uh, office staff, warranty, uh, secretarial, and everything. Everything from the you know person answering the phone to the person standing at the loading dock loading the trucks. Gotcha. Thirty-four people did all of it. Okay. And 
So everybody wore more than one hat. Yeah, know? I can and imagine. I, I can imagine. And and I got hired to teach the service school, but service school was only a five-day school, and we only did, I don't remember, eight or ten schools a year. So that left a whole lot of empty time. So, you know, Peter Adams would call me into the office, and I would go in, and he would say, well, now you're going to be the sales rep. Since service school's over, you're going to be a sales rep. So go talk to the sales manager, who was Joe Saluzzo. <laughs> and I would go and talk to Joe, and Joe would say, okay, you're going to get the New England Territory, and you get a company car or a company van, and you're also going to be the service rep, because for the first time they were going to have mobile service reps, and that was going to be me, too. And so I drove around with this, the Butler and Smith orange van and, and went on dealer visits. Um, and, uh, you know, I visited a lot of the shops where a lot of the guys that you've already interviewed yeah, yeah. Uh, worked at, like like Bud Proven. But Bud's dad, the first time I walked in the store, I said, hi, I'm your new Butler and Smith representative. And he said, big deal. <laughs> <laughs> So, okay, then. Yeah, right. That was a pretty frosty reception. Yeah. And Bud tells me that was the most his dad talked all day. <laughs> That's pretty funny. So, <laughs> at the time, hey, so yeah. at the time, I'm trying to just get a little time stamp on here. So, you're doing the service schools. This sounds like it's mid 70s. So, uh, this, this is, I guess, yeah. Slash 7 series is out. Uh, that was yeah. the, the new uh, bikes of the time. So, I'm curious. What, uh, and in, during the service school, obviously, you know, you're teaching uh, folks about maintenance and troubleshooting and things like that. Curious, at that time with those models, uh, the Slash 7 being new and knowing what had already come out, uh, the previous models, what kind of common issues, trouble areas were you seeing with that era of bike that you were, you know, having to spend time with at the service school or having to go over with uh, dealers and other technicians? Well, uh, we had to teach the dealers how to rebuild transmissions because there were a lot of transmission complaints. We had to change the cluster shaft in, I'm trying to remember the number, I think it was 3,200 gearboxes, which meant we had to pull the gearboxes out of every bike in the warehouses on both coasts and take the transmission apart and change the cluster shaft and one shift fork and put it back in. Now, and we got to the point where we used to joke that two of us, we worked on, on benches out in the, in the warehouse. We joked that we could steal your transmission while you were stopped. There. <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no kidding. So was that with, uh, and I'm just going to take a stab here, Was I'm assuming those issues with our, were with the uh, early 74 models? No. Those, no. These, these were with the 77s. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, well, the first slash sevens, actually. Okay. Apparently, they had a, a test rider got injured or killed in Germany. I don't remember the story at this point, but they sent us a stop sale order. Wow. Okay. Before we had really shipped any bikes of the Slash 7 series. They had just done the dealer release and the dealer, you know, they had a big dealer meeting on each coast and showed off the new RS. And everybody was all excited and hot under the collar. And they were like, come on, you know, let us have them. And then Butler and Smith was like, you can't have them. Wow. How many? The how many? was on us. How many transmissions did you have to service? Over 3,000, I don't remember the exact number, 3,200, 3,400, something like that. Wow. Yeah, it was everyone in both warehouse, 
both warehouses and everything that was coming in, because everything that was on the water had to be done too, you know, as we call it. Everything once it had left BMW and was in transit. Wow. All of those had to have that upgrade, and we got you know pallet loads of cluster shafts and all the parts we needed, and and we just did them all day long, and and we had one guy in in each service department just doing the transmissions. We had Franco Guarcio, an old Sicilian guy who did transmissions all day, smoked like a chimney while he was working. <laughs> I'm pretty sure he put cigarette butts in the transmissions. <laughs> <but>. <laughs> or at least some ashes. Was, yeah, that's funny. <laughs> yeah, oh, Ash went in every one. That was, that was the signature thing. He said, this makes it work better. He would flick his ash in every transmission. <laughs> Oh, that's good. But, well, that's a pretty uh, big. That was, that was that was my my baptism of fire. That was the first major recall that I was involved with. Wow! And uh, no sooner did we finish that one than the cast wheel recall came along. Yeah, yeah. So let me ask you about and that. I, so uh, yeah. here's here's just what I've heard, and you know, obviously I'm coming. You know, I'm a different generation. I'm obviously a little bit later to the party as a aficionado of these bikes, but generally speaking. My understanding on this has, has always been with the snowflake and the quote-unquote recall is maybe there was an issue uh, with some hard driving, you know, uh, a bike hit a pothole or something, and it, was, it, it did crack and separate, and there was an issue, uh, and, but it was done maybe more out of being, uh, being careful not necessarily that they were prone to failure and there were just hundreds of, you know, or thousands of failures going forward. Is that the case? Was it really more preventative uh, because they were concerned were no, about it? There were no failures. That's what no I thought. Failures. Okay. They had a test. They, you know, they tested bikes on the track over there and every bike got torn down and everything got analyzed and they found hairline cracks in the wheel hubs on some of the front wheel, 19 inch front cast wheels. They notified, you know, the, the analysis guys notified the front office. The front office guys notified some people, and some people notified some other people. And because the BMW is a stickler about following rules and regulations and laws, they were required at that time. Once they discovered this defect, they had to report it to the NHTSA. And the, mm-hmm. Don't forget, that recall was only U.S.-based. They reported it to the NHTSA, and the NHTSA, NHTSA, I'll just call them NHTSA. There you go, yeah. They over, their reaction was, you must recall every one of those wheels, period. That, that set off a campaign of recalling the wheels. None of those wheels failed in the United States, to my knowledge, not one. Um, and then I looked at hundreds and hundreds of wheels that came back. They were stored in long rows in the warehouse at Butler and Smith. And I sat with a flashlight and I examined every wheel and I never found one mm. with a crack in it. But of course, a lot of these were wheels off brand new bikes. Yeah. Other ones were, were you know, these are these low mileage motorcycles. They, there were very few high mileage bikes. That recall, unfortunately, they never capped the recall. There was no end date on it. Um, There's a lot of mistakes made on that recall. And so finally, their only way of getting out of that recall was to cease production of those 19-inch alloy wheels at the end of the mandated period when they had to supply spare wheels. And that was only a few years ago. Yeah, that's right. Up until then, as long as you could buy new wheels, you could submit 
a, an original pre-recall wheel for replacement, and they had to honor it, and they did. And, and uh, you know, so you got dealers that were pulling wrecked bikes you know, out of salvage yards and taking the <laughs> wheel off and sending it and getting a new wheel. And it was like, okay, whatever it takes, and just get them out of circulation. But I remember taking the forklift, and we had, had a wall that was an earthen wall with a cement in front of it, and putting rows of these wheels up against the wall and backing the forklift into them to crush them. Wow. Bang them up enough so that they couldn't be fished out of our dumpster and put back in for recall again. And repurpose. So if somebody's hearing this... Well, no, they were just put into recall. Oh, the dealers, oh. There was a local dealer close to Norwood, New Jersey, who knew to go through our dumpster every night. <laughs> and he would take warranty parts that we had thrown out, and he would file another warranty claim. Oh, jeez. Just with the new VIN number of it. Well, anyways, everybody's got to do what they got to do to eat, you know? Right. Well, but, uh, you know, there anyways, were... We can move beyond that. Yeah, there were... Well, let me add, follow up on this. One last point yeah. on this then. So most... A vast majority of those bikes had their wheels uh, recalled. Most owners probably did it. Most dealers probably saw to it that it was done. There are probably still uh, a few bikes out there that still have the non-recall, pre-recall wheel. So if somebody's wondering what that looks like, how how are those... Just to the naked eye, how do you differ differentiate those two? Oh, it's very easy to spot. It's front wheel only, 19-inch rim only. Yeah. That was R80 and R100 only. It was not on the R65 uh, or the R60-7, which had spoke wheels. Mm -hmm. um, the, uh, the wheels had the recall replacement wheel had a reinforcing rib cast in between the spokes about up the spoke about the first five or six inches of each from the hub in each wheel. And that's the earlier ones did not have that central reinforcing rib. The later ones had that rib added. It's very easy to spot. I, whenever I look at any photograph of any BMW with the snowflake mm -hmm. alloy wheels, I instantly, my eye goes right to it and I go, sure. there's one they missed. Yep. Yep. Because the, the problem is that now collectors are, are considering that to be a badge of true originality to have a non-recall wheel. Yeah, I have a 78 RS, uh, one of the gold ones. Uh, that's yeah. a pretty low mileage bike. I'm, I don't know, I may have sent you a photo. But anyway, uh, and it's, it's a, a pre-recall uh, front wheel. And, and it could have been replaced free of charge up until about two years ago. Well, actually, I think they still have some gold wheels in stock. I think that so. That bike had gold wheels. It did. It did. And yeah. I, I think I looked, I remember maybe I was looking at the Max Parts Fish or something like that one day just to see if they still had them. I can't, I can't recall what the what the status was there. But, yes, uh, I, I still have, I think, one of the pre-recall uh, wheels in my garage right now. So, uh, Wow. Yeah. Yeah, and now uh, that has value to somebody. I I do not consider that to be any. Now I got to be careful here because um, I had to sign NDAs on a lot of this stuff. Yeah, um, I got to make sure I don't step on it. To my knowledge, I don't recall ever seeing one fail. I am not saying that there is no risk. That there is no safety risk. But I wouldn't, if I went to your house, you said, here, Tom, you can use my RS. And I noticed that it had a, a pre-recall wheel on it. 
I wouldn't refuse to ride. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. That's a that's a good way of uh, of stating that. Now, along those lines, uh, we're sort of in this you know seventy seven seventy eight era, uh, and we're talking about RSs. Uh, of course, we all know. I, I want to ask you about this model in in particular because you were kind of right there at Butler Smith at the time. So, the first thing I want to yep. get your uh, impressions are when the seventy six RS came out. Uh, the first year model, spoke wheel, all that kind of stuff. What was the response uh, in the motorcycle community that you saw to that bike? They were blown away. It was the first fully fared motorcycle to be offered for public consumption in any kind of actual numbers. I mean, not counting like the Vincent Black Prince or something like that, uh, which was never available in the United States from a retail dealer, to my knowledge. Um, but as, as a bike that you could go down to a local dealership and buy, it was the very first fully fared motorcycle, and the fairing was absolutely brilliant. To this day, I think it's the best fairing ever developed for a motorcycle. I have a friend who has a 77, and 77 was the first year in the U.S., although they were produced in 76. He has a 77 RS. He lives over at the Jersey Shore, and in the middle of the winter, he'll call me up. Yeah, home. I go. Yeah, he says, let's go have breakfast. He comes over from the Jersey Shore. It's about seventy miles from his house. He shows up in a windbreaker and a pair of light cotton pants. Now, granted, <laughs> that's not at Gat by any measure. Yeah. Um, aren't you cold? He goes, No, it's beautiful out. Yeah. I get on my bike with no fairing. We go ten miles. Like we do. I got to go back and get some gear. Yeah, it is and a barely, it, it is it a great ripples his jacket. It, it is a great cold weather bike, no doubt about it. Uh, conversely, you know this uh, when you're in the mid nineties, uh, not so much. It gets a little hot under there. But yeah, the fair, the full fairing, yeah. obviously a game changer. Uh, those first uh, bikes that came to the U.S. Uh, those were the ones that had the 40 millimeter exhaust, uh, and were not yep, yet, had. not yet stamped, uh, with the California, Florida, uh, Oregon, the CFO stamp. So tell me about how that, uh, that CFO designation came about, I guess, which was that later in the model run on the CFO bikes didn't show up till 78 models okay. a year. Because that was the beginning of California, Florida, and Oregon having different noise level restrictions. And the noise level restrictions, they didn't change anything in the muffler. They simply had to stamp on the muffler that it met the standards. Okay. The mufflers were submitted, their bikes were tested, and they said, okay, that design muffler works. Now you've got to put a permanent, affix a permanent stamp. You couldn't rivet a tag on it. They had to stamp it or engrave it in the wheel, in the muffler, so they did. And a lot of people put a big thing on, oh, see, this doesn't have that engraved on it. It's like, who cares? doesn't change anything. The muffler doesn't work any differently. Yeah, true. Exactly the same muffler inside. It just has a paragraph. You know, was was the old line from Alice's Restaurant with circles and arrows? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. That's a paragraph of description of what it was about, and that's all. They they shipped the CFO mufflers went all over the country. The bikes just came with CFO mufflers on. Now, were Um, there any were there any performance differences with a CFO versus a non CFO? For instance, my seventy eight, the gold one, uh, is a CFO stamped. 
uh, engine. So how would that differentiate horsepower-wise, performance-wise, or any other way with one that no wasn't? No difference at all. No difference at all from any late production 77, because in mid-77, they went, and there's a reason why, I'll get this, they went from the big, the 40-millimeter pipes back to 38-millimeter pipes, and and at that point, they lost a little bit of exhaust flow, but what they picked up was low, better low-end response and power mm-hmm. in the usable part of the power band. Yeah, that's they what I've... lost I've... a little bit on the top end at flat out, but the fact is, you know, what came along in 1974 in the United States? 55-mile-an-hour national speed limit. <laughs> That's right, yeah. What the hell good is it to have a bike that breathes a little bit better at 110 miles an hour? <laughs> Any place you get, when you get on a radar at 110, anywhere in the United States, you're going to get to wear some bracelets. And, uh, <laughs> That's a good point. Uh, I know the feeling. They're not comfortable. Yeah. Um, and God knows I've, I've had that experience far too many times. Uh, and and, and uh, everything that they lost, Upstairs, I mean, BMW's engineers are good. They're incredibly good. They said, okay, we we got to restrict the exhaust so we can take advantage of that to improve cylinder head flow. They made some very slight porting differences and changes in the later 77 heads. They changed the, the squish band in the heads. They changed the ports a little bit. They changed the, the carburation jetting a little bit and actually improved low-end power. They made them smoother off idle. They made them respond better, um, and and uh, uh, they made them more pleasant to ride. I didn't ever really like, and and my friends got one of the big pipe motors. Mm-hmm. They had actually we've changed the top end since then, but um, but then when we changed his, we put the thirty eight mil pipes on it and, and heads, and and he liked it better. He said, "I like riding it with that better." Yeah, that makes yeah, sense. It's, it's, yeah. yeah, that's exactly um, what I've heard. So there were also, yeah. you know, along those lines, especially in the the seventy eight uh, model run, I guess, uh, you know, they had the there were the uh, the metallic gold ones. Uh, the motorsport right. series uh, came out for the first time. Uh, the white bikes with the uh, blue seats yep. and the yeah. and the special pinstriping. And then there, there I. That was the true motorsport. Yeah. Yep. That was and, yeah. and then I guess there's also the sort of the legend of the so-called uh, Belgian police bike or whatever you want to call okay, it. So let me tell you about those. Yeah. Well, let me ask I'll that. Tell you about those. But, yeah. Okay. Well, the, what I want to ask you there is on those on those I guess variations. The first thing I want to ask you is with the motorsport and then the later uh, Belgian whatever you want to call it. Were those done, the first thing I want to ask you is, were those done as a response because maybe the bikes weren't selling as much and they wanted to repackage them, or, and especially with the motorsport series? And it did some of that also, that that's separate aside from the Belgian police, but I'm just curious about the U.S. models when the specifically the motorsport was introduced, or was that just something uh, that they were doing to commemorate, you know, a commemorative edition? What first? What was the story behind the motorsport? The motorsport was that was actually to commemorate BMW's motorsport division in Germany. Yep. And the the motorsport color scheme with the two blue and red uh, stripe and with on the white paint on the Alpine white paint mm-hmm. was. That was their symbolic livery for all of their racing cars. And so they did an R100 RS in the same colors, 
and uh, Hans Smoot had a hand in that in in the the color layout. Although Hans, from his mouth, it's the only RS he ever liked was the original flat silver because that one didn't show the imperfections of the very difficult to mold fairing. Yeah, I can see uh, that. Later on, they, they put a lot, they had to put a lot of body filler into the later ones to get smooth paint on them <laughs> um, because of the type of material that they molded those out of. But that, that motorsport, um, they're very limited in, in numbers. I don't know, I think 200 million might... I never really dealt with the sales end of that part. Right. Um, and, and so I didn't really know the numbers, but I think there was only 250 motorsport bikes came to the U.S. And, and uh, of them, they went out to the dealers, and some of them died in the showrooms because what happened was we went into a recession. Yep, that's right. And gas prices skyrocketed. People felt the pension, and I'm not going to get into politics and stuff, but the recession was poorly managed. Yeah. Um, and, and the people that were buying motorcycles just simply couldn't justify that expense. So that, and, and when you get recession slows down sales, retail sales, that very quickly backs up through the supply chain all the way to the factory level. And it got to the point where there was a distributor in Germany, and I don't believe that it was a Belgian dealer or a Belgian distributor, but one of the European distributors canceled an order for about 2,000 bikes. And BMW, like in a panic, because they were in production on those bikes, and you can't just switch off the production line because that just it just screws everything up. Yeah. So they continue to produce these bikes, and, and they they sent us a bunch of different colors of bodywork, and they sent the Avis black with the blue pinstriping was one, and and the Bronco metallic, which was like this this weird black metallic with a lime green pinstripe, and and the champagne color that was on the early R65s, and Bronco red that was on the R65. And then they, they sent us some two-tone RS bodywork. It was like uh, red on the top and flat black to lower. So, yeah. And uh, they sent all this stuff and gas tanks to match. And we put them on a whole bunch of new bikes. And we lined them up out in the parking lot at Butler and Smith and invited the local BMW club guys over for a brats and oompa band and and asked them all to, to fill out a questionnaire. What do you think of these, these different body colors you know we're we're like getting some gauging consumer interest and based on those numbers that came from that day and the 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 brought worse than oompa crowd uh <laughs> said we like this better and we like this and they really liked the red upper and the black lower so we said okay and then then peter adams got his sales team in the office and said okay how many of these should we take and the advantage you see was he got them so cheap he got R100 RSs for almost $1,000 less than an R65 was costing him. Wow. I mean, this was a bonanza. Uh, but don't forget, we were up against the fact that they weren't selling. Yeah. So, you know. It's all relative. What price you get something for if you can't sell it. Yeah, it's all relative. Uh, exactly. So, yeah, and, and so, so BMW 
underwrote some of it financially for him, which let us pass that on to the dealers in terms of really long floor plan financing for the dealers. And the dealers, you had to put them on the, on the floor. They had to be on display. They couldn't be sitting in your warehouse. Mm-hmm. They had to be out on display to qualify for this extended floor plan. And the dealers got a really good price. And, and the warranty started the day the bike was actually sold, so there was no warranty issue with that. Wow. And, and we got... Um, and there were mostly RSs and a few S models that came through with motorsport paint. Um, there were there were no more motorsport RSs after the original ones. We didn't get the motorsport RSs in that batch of quote Belgian bikes. We did get some bikes that came through an R100S body style with motorsport paint on them. Yeah, and those there was only ninety of those, and they were gorgeous. Yeah, yeah, um, and you see a few of those pop up from time to time, but. That seems to be the most uh, rare of that particular era and model run. So is there a better term than Belgian police special? Because it sounds to me like that just has zero to do with that bike and that paint scheme. It has zero to do with it, but it's the term that people have adopted. I don't know. It was They were simply surplus bikes. Yeah. A, a distributor, and I don't, rec- I don't want to say which distributor because I don't recall accurately yeah. which it was. But just a, a distributor said, look, we're, we're just up to our gunnels with bikes here. We can't take any more. Um, so, so just cancel our order. Well, and we'll, we'll take the, the, whatever the punishment for doing that is. You know, that was all way above my pay grade. Yeah. Well, you know, and you're, I agree sort of with the assessment uh, of the Bratwurst uh, and Oompa crowd. I mean, those, that was a, a, an attractive color scheme, the, that red and, yeah, and flat black. Yeah, it was black. very striking. Yeah. And those had, if I remember, they had a kickstart uh, on those transmissions, too. Some did, some yeah. didn't. Yeah. That, basically, they were just using up whatever gearbox production that Gatrag could give them. Because uh, Gatrag, you know, put, uh, Jesus, how many were they? 2,400 gearboxes in a container load that went on a rail car. And so BMW said, okay, we got to produce these bikes, and we got to spiff them up. And... Uh, I don't think we got any say on whether or not we got Kickstarters. Mm-hmm. I think we got some of both. I'm trying to think what the other features were. Some came with the first aid kit under the seat, yeah. which was a horrible mistake, because then it, it took the seat padding out of exactly the wrong place. <laughs> Where the rider was. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, it affected the male riders. Let me just put it that way. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> the female riders weren't bothered by it at all. <laughs> okay. Uh, and uh, uh, you know, they, but those bikes, you know, it, it, it generated a little bit of excitement during a time when sales were really flat for the dealers. Yeah, and, and I was a, a sales rep in, in in going around to the dealers, and there were a lot of long faces. There was a lot of dust on bikes in the showroom. I remember going into. Uh, Slager's Forbes dealership in Persephone, New Jersey, and the BMW corner of their showroom. They had Honda, Yamaha, Suzuki, Kawasaki, everything in there. Uh, the BMW corner was like four new bikes covered with dust, all these boxes leaning up against them with all these promotional materials that BMW had sent and not even taken out of the box. They really just kind of leaned up in that corner, mm. and it was roped off from the rest of the showroom. Wow. And I said, to the, I said to the owner, Hank Slagers, I, I was young and dumb. Now you got this, this story bears telling. I said, uh, 
I said, you got to do something about this. I said, you got to clean this up. I said, I'm going to be back through on a return swing from Pennsylvania on Thursday. And Thursday morning, I'd like to sit down with you and your partner and talk to you guys about this. I said, you're our flagship dealer for North New Jersey. I said, and this is pathetic. And I, you know, young and brash, and this is what you've got to do. And I left. And uh, I called in, you know, every night, and I told Joe Saluzzo, the sales manager, um, that I had set up a meeting with Hank Slagers and his, his partner, Mr. Forbes, who I didn't have a freaking clue who Malcolm Forbes was. <laughs> and uh, I said, I'm going to go straighten these guys out. I said, I'm going to. I said, I'm going to kick their asses a little bit and get them to clean that operation up. Right. I said, because they can do it. They've obviously got the assets to do it. Let's, let's, let's have these guys do it. So I went in on a Thursday morning, and Malcolm Forbes was there. <laughs> and I brought in donuts, and I gave them donuts. And I sat them down, and I gave them fire and brimstone for about an hour and a half about the BMW product and the pride in manufacturing it and the quality control from every single component of the motorcycle, and that finished product was sitting in their showroom gathering dust like it was a junk car in the corner of a barn. I said, that's just not acceptable. I said, and you guys are our, you guys are our principal dealer in North Jersey now. I said, you guys are the ones that we expect to be to be carrying the flag and showing this product and making things happen. And I really, you know, I, I, was, I was young. And you got to remember that <laughs> it comes up over and over. I refuse to cut my hair and beard. I look like a mountain man right. in a business suit. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, um, pictures of me, I look at pictures of me from those days, and I think, my God, why didn't anybody just kick me out when I got to the door? But I gave them the whole, the whole song and dance, and I got them to sign an order for eight new bikes and for a couple of display units that we had that they didn't have in all those boxes. I helped their salesmen clean up the bikes that were there and arrange everything, and I spent the whole day there, and I drove back to Butler and Smith, and I rolled in the parking lot right at 5 p.m., and I was just going to park the company car and take my bike and ride home, and I walk in the door, and I got a I hear over the loudspeaker, Mr. Cutter, please report to Dr. Adams' office. So I was like, oh, okay, wow. So I go in, and I'm all proud. I got, the, I got this order for eight bikes, which at that time, getting an order for eight bikes from a dealer was a big deal. Yeah. I walk in, and I slide the order onto his desk, and he slides a copy of Forbes magazine across the desk. He says, you recognize that name? <laughs> I looked at it, and I said, you just spent an hour and a half telling the editor of this magazine how to do business. I was like, uh, okay. I said, but I didn't lie to him. I said, I didn't tell him anything bad. I said, I just pointed out what I was seeing with my eyes. And he said, well, he said, I just got off the phone with Malcolm, and he was very impressed with your enthusiasm and with your your willingness to work with them. He said, but he did cancel. The order. <laughs> Dude, how can you? Do he said, but he was very impressed with your presentation. <laughs> I said, "Am I fired?" He said, "No, no." He said, "But he said, but next week I want you to go out." He said, "They are going to take a couple of bikes because they have orders for me. I want you to go out, and, you know, because it was close to the show." He said, "Go out there and work with them, with Hank, and and get them." Of course, Malcolm wasn't in the shop. Both yeah. Days. Well, that's funny. I thought that's where that story was going. That you know they're going to hand you your pink slip there, but no, I thought to do, but. 
Malcolm and I became friends. I ran into him on the side of the road. I was out riding in, in early spring and, and, uh, in 1979, and I, I pulled over to have a cigarette and warm up, and he pulled in next to me to see if I was broken down. I was huh. riding a new 750 Honda, and, and we talked, and he said, oh, I remember you. You were the salesman. I said, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I gave him my business card, and he put me on their uh, uh, his Christmas list. Oh, how about that? I got invited to their Christmas party at the at the mansion for several years. Well, needless, That was kind of cool. You made an impression, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you made an impression. Well, let's transition a little bit so here. So, I uh, there, yeah. and that's some great that's some great stuff from the Butler and Smith days and I'm glad we got to talk a lot a lot about those RSs because I know that a lot of that's sort of urban myth and legend. Uh but eventually uh, Butler and Smith went by the wayside of BMW uh, North America. So tell me about that transition uh, and sort of how that changed the perception of marketing, promotion, and sales of, uh, of Airheads uh, in, in that time, going from Butler and Smith to uh, N.A. Okay. I'll tell you my perspective. Yes, indeed. Um, I was at Butler and Smith with 34 guys, and we worked our butts off all day to move motorcycles. And and in June of 1980, Peter Adams called me into his office and told me that BMW was taking over distribution of the motorcycles and that they had reviewed all of the current employees and they were going to make the choice not to keep me on for service training program. And, of course, the first question out of my mouth was, is this because I won't get a haircut? He says, it had something to do with it. <laughs> I was like, okay, that's fine. I don't want to work for them anyways. I said, to be quite honest, I said, every every interaction I've ever had with the people from BMW North America was unpleasant. I said, their arrogance is just staggering. I said, I'm sorry to see what they're going to do to the product. He said, that's another discussion we won't have. But... Um, so he told me basically, he said, from now until we close down this building, he said, you can take whatever resources you need. He said, if you need a company vehicle, if you need to use your company credit card for lodging to go someplace to try to get a, find yourself a new position, you can do that. And uh, uh, what happened is he one day he gave me a uh, uh, he had a letter from the owner of Bel Air Motors in Staten Island, New York, there was a German guy uh, applying for a dealership, motorcycle dealership. And uh, um, he said, I want to give them the franchise. He said, and I want you to set them up. He said, and I've already told them that if they'll hire you as their general manager, then they'll get the franchise. I said, well, that works because that's within commuting distance of the house I just bought. Mm-hmm. So that worked. So I went to Staten Island, and uh, and uh, but what really sucked was the day Butler and Smith closed was on September 31st, 1980. I would have been vested in my pension at Butler and Smith the next morning at 9 a.m. Oh, good grief! Yeah, so, no, no coincidence there, I guess. Yeah, well, I, I don't know whether or not it was because. Uh, uh, I closed. I was the last one in the building. I closed and locked the building and drove over to Peter Adams' house uh, with the keys, with the company van, and with the keys to the building. And uh, I gave them to him, and I told him the building was closed and the alarm was armed. And 
Um, I had gotten written instructions on everything, including changing the alarm code. So anyways, he invited me in for coffee, and his wife, his very nice wife, had made lunch for us, and we had lunch. And at the end of it, he handed me a card that said, a thank you card for all of it. He said, you've worked really hard. And, and he said, your attitude has been positive right to the end. He said, and I really appreciate it. And I opened the card, and there was a check written on his personal account for the entire amount of what my pension would have been vested at that Wow. Day. How about that? Out of his pocket. Wow. How about that? He said, I know you guys have got a brand-new baby at home. He said, and I know that you've committed to the purchase of a house in a very expensive area, and it just kind of took the wind out of your sails, and I don't want this to be a negative experience for you. Wow. So, I mean, that's the kind of person he was. <clears throat> so I went to Staten Island. Uh, I took everything out from the building at Butler & Smith that BMW had not specifically purchased, every nut, bolt, and washer. I loaded in the van and took it down to Staten Island like every day for two weeks. I was driving down there with stuff and uh, tools out of the, the service department and out of the school and everything else. <clears throat> and set up a, sh a shop down there in Staten Island. And, and in uh, 26 months from the day I opened the doors, I was the number one sales dealer east of the Mississippi. How about that? We were moving by Oak Oakland and gave me a very nice write-up in the owner's news about his experience at service school. And uh, uh, he mentioned in his, some of his subsequent tech columns that I was open for business down there. We were doing dual plug conversions, doing a ton of them at the time. And, uh, you know, we were we were – we were the hot shots on the East Coast, and we were moving a ton of bikes. And I had a salesman down there, a guy who just was really, really good. Uh, he was one of these guys that could sell refrigerators to Eskimos. You know, just he didn't, you know, people would walk in the door and he'd smile and shake their hand and show them the bikes and get them to sign the order. And man, just he moved so many bikes. But those were the days, you know. How well, and so uh, working with BMW North America yeah. in those days was misery. It was misery. Um, they just they hit the ground running with this attitude of we're better than the Americans. The Americans don't know what they're doing. All the Americans that they hired, they almost all of them they weeded out, except for the couple who who basically became lapdogs. Uh, just the kindest thing I can say about them. Um, all the rest of them were gone within a year, and uh, they, they put in their own people, people that they hired from, I don't know, how, how personnel departments work and how they, they find people, but a lot of their people just never had any any heart for motorcycling at all. So you were still having to deal with them though as a as a yeah. as a shop and a dealer. So what kind of thing yeah, well I'm curious now, what were they sort of instituting uh as far as marketing and promotion wise that was different than you were used to with uh Butler and Smith? There is very automotive in in terms of their marketing strategies. Um <clears throat> They, they they failed to market the excitement of motorcycling for five years. They they said we got a new product. Here's some new brochures, some shiny new brochures. You know they would have a dealer meeting and they would tell us everything at the dealer meeting was about financing terms and and dealer floor plan terms and and uh, advertising credit that you would get if you you know your co-op advertising credit and stuff. It wasn't about the motorcycle. 
it was not about the motorcycles. It was it was almost as if it didn't make any difference if it was refrigerators. And that's the way that it felt to a lot of us older dealers. And I wasn't older by any means. No, I'm yeah. talking about, you know, I was 25 years old. And I was general manager of this dealership. And I'm, a lot of the guys I was dealing with, they, they had a... Uh, they had a focus group. They invited me to participate in, in Vail when they did the release of the K-Series. Yeah. The, the dealer release was in Vail, Colorado, and uh, they invited about 20 of us dealers to, to be in this focus group, and I was one of them. And uh, um, they sat us around this big table, and they had a lot of video cameras recording what we were talking about, and they had all these BMW people in the next room watching the video, you know, it's like very strange. But um, one of the the uh, questions that they asked was, "Why are you in business?" Half of the dealers couldn't answer the question. Jeez! I looked around and I thought, "Am I in the wrong? Am I in the wrong building?" <laughs> like, yeah. What is, it? is this maintenance staff for the hotel? Who are these people? How the hell do you not know why you're in the business? Well, and I mean, you would say, well, I really like motorcycles or 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 to deliver a good experience for my customer. I was like, they came to me. I said to make money. And the guy jumped up as Jerry Bill was the, the, the dealer liaison for our territory. He jumped up. He said, I told you he'd know. <laughs> <laughs> and I laughed. I was like, of course, that's why you're in business. You buy low, sell high. That's what business people That's do. what business is. That's right. Well, and, and then make it exciting. Around that time, I mean, also, you know, that's uh, right at that transition uh, period for you and going to NA uh, the, was the introduction of the R80 uh, GS. Now, at the time, I guess that was a bit of a head scratcher because who was thinking I need a 800 cc? Uh, you know, 400 pound dirt bike. What, what was the your sort of reaction and the general reaction of uh, folks? Because I guess as you're sort of painting this picture, there was a you know maybe a little bit of resentment uh, having to work with uh, BMW NA, and then you maybe get this weird bike. You know, what are we supposed to do with this? Was that was it a head scratcher? It was for me because I didn't get to go to the dealer meeting or the, the intro meeting. Yeah. The owner of the dealership, who was a car guy, took his new girlfriend to the dealer meeting. And they spent the entire time driving around in the countryside and didn't attend any of the promotional stuff, the, you know, the new product stuff. He came back with a little folder and handed it to me here. <laughs> coming with some new bikes. That's what he said. Yeah. So we got the first. See, I would I would go to Norwood with our company truck, a flatbed truck, and pick up motorcycles six or eight at a time and bring them back to the shop because we were close. And Staten Island to Norwood is only a forty-five minute drive. Yeah. <clears throat> so I would pick up bikes. So I would go the moment they had new models. I would be right up and I'd be jumping on them. And uh, um, so I got some of the earliest R80GSs in the U.S., and, and I brought them back to the shop, and we set, you know we prepped one up, juiced up the battery and stuff, and uh, fired it up. And, you know, I adjusted the carbs and did all this stuff, and, and it was the first time we had a bike with electronic ignition. So, you know, we would 
you know, pull the spark plug caps off in order to balance the carburetor. <laughs> yeah. And that was what we did in those days. So, you know, I didn't see anything wrong with that. It seemed to work fine. So I get on the bike, and when you do that to electronic ignition, it doesn't kill it instantly. It ruins it like a gut-shot deer, and it takes it a couple hours to die. Yeah, it's a slow death, so I right. get on the bike, and I ride through Bayonne, New Jersey, through a really sketchy section of Bayonne, and the bike sputters to a stop coming off a stoplight. So I pull on the side of the road, and I call the shop from a phone booth. No cell phones in those days. We're talking about 1980, uh, fall of 1980. And uh, these two kids come over on bicycles, and one of them says, Hey, man, what size is that? I said, it's 800 cc. And he said, look, and they're nodding their head, and as they're riding away, he says to his friend, Bullshit, it's an 80. It says it right on the side. <laughs> and I was cracking up. I was like, okay, whatever, you know, I, okay, I'm busted. <laughs> but uh, um, I got it back to the shop and replaced the uh, the ignition canister, and uh, the bike ran fine. And, and that's when I called BMW North America and talked to one of my service reps up there. He said, oh, yeah, you can't pull the plug wires off. I said, well, you might want to mention that in service school. He said, well, we haven't had service school on that model yet. I said, that's kind of a thing you might want to mention. We used to teach teach pulling the plug wires off. So I said, we're going to need to fix that. So anyways. Did that bike? That was kind of my experience. But here's a funny thing. Yeah. I sold more R80GSs in the first year than any other dealer in the world. Interesting. And I was selling them in New York City. I was the only dealer in the largest city in the world. So explain the sale of their new first dirt bike Mm -hmm. in the biggest city in the world. And at that time, New York City was number one still in population. And I was selling bikes like crazy. So they dragged me up there a couple of years later. First, they sent a a product development team down. They said, we heard that you're making modifications on the R80GS. I said, yeah, I'm putting 19-inch front wheels on them, and I'm putting a low R65 fender on it. And we're changing, we're putting the chrome handlebars on instead of the black handlebars. And we're repainting them in our body shop. We had a car dealership. We were linked to a car dealership. As I take the stuff over to the body shop at 9 o'clock in the morning, and I've got body work painted and striped by 5 p.m. And uh, it's been baked and everything. It's been in the oven the whole thing. So we were repainting bikes. Any any car color that we had in stock, you could come in and order a GS, Hmm. and you could go home the next day with it in any color you wanted. And uh, they were selling like crazy. So they 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 brought me up there to tell all of their guys about what I did. And I said, yeah, it's all part spin stuff. And I showed them the part numbers of the, the parts that I was using. And then they, they took me to Germany to go talk to the people at the factory about it. And I did the same thing, gave them the same story, showed them pictures of the bikes that we made. And that was the uh, essentially the ST. That became the R80ST, and when the R80ST was released, I ordered eight of them, and I went up to Norwood to pick them up. They were still working out of that warehouse. That was the old Butler and Smith building, and I went up with a flatbed, and the guy comes to me, and he says, I got nine bikes for you. I said, no. I said, it should be eight. No, he says, here, there's nine. He said, here's a folder of some stuff with your name on the front. I looked at it, and inside it said it had a certificate of origin with my name on it. 
And uh, the bike was serial number 6207001. Mm. It was the first U.S. R80ST. How about that? And it was a gift. It was a gift from BMW to me. And uh, that was pretty cool. Yeah. Um, and I rode that bike for a long time. And a friend of mine still has it. I know exactly where it is. Good. And she keeps telling me, yeah, it's leaning against the shed. It's in California. It's got over 100,000 miles on it. And I am trying to negotiate to get it back, but unfortunately, uh, she knows what it's worth. And, you know, I've already paid for it once. <laughs> it's my work. Yeah. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, you know, I'm not really looking to pay for it again. Yeah, <laughs> but, I understand. Uh, you know, we'll see if we, can, if we can come to some kind of an agreement. Wow. I don't know. Any more, I'm not collecting motorcycles. I'm getting rid of motorcycles. Sure, sure. As I can. You know, that's another whole story, but I'm down to three bikes, only being all BMWs, but well, that is, that's that's a fascinating story. Uh, the origin of the ST, that's one I had not heard, uh, before and I didn't know that. So, um, very interesting. You know what? It's no surprise really. I mean, you mentioned you sold a lot of those bikes and you sort of modified them. Part of the appeal uh, on those, I remember the first time I rode a, uh, GS, uh, one of the early ones. You just, I was amazed how nimble uh, and easy to drive it was, how light it was, and especially yeah, in an right. urban in an urban environment. Yeah, and uh, you know, my, I used to joke to people, "This is the best handling bike I've ever ridden on a New York City sidewalk." Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly. <laughs> traffic jams in New York City, the motorcycles ride on the sidewalk, just blow the horn, make people dive out of the way. Yeah, that's kind of what we did in those days. We were looking wild and crazy, but it, it uh, is notable that the motorcycle I helped design was the worst-selling model BMW you've ever bought. <laughs> that's, yeah. yeah, that's funny. Yeah, and fortunately. <laughs> Yes, I mean, everybody who talks about an ST mentions, yeah, what a fantastic handling machine. Unfortunately, yes, it was a short-lived model run, uh, but uh, nonetheless, an interesting story. All right, I want to move a little bit forward in the timeline here. Well, we'll have to leave it there for now. Turns out Tom's got a lot more to say. We'll get into that in part two of our conversation with him next time we meet. The Airheads 247 podcast is distributed and produced by From Off Productions. Our theme music is from Jimbo Mathis. You can find him on the web at therealjimbomathis.com. Our producer engineer is Jeff Glover. I'm Darren Dorton. Look forward to catching up with you next time.